Welcome everybody to the Longhorn Republic, your source for Texas Longhorn news, sports, and opinions with a bit of snark built in. We are a podcast of Burn Orange Nation, and you can find more great Texas Longhorn content over at burnorangenation.com. If you like what we do, please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps get the show out there. Share this with your friends. Maybe you found it, whether it was Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, anywhere where you find fine podcast content. You can find Kyle and myself. Connect with us on social media at Longhorn Pod, Facebook and Instagram, the Longhorn Republic, or shoot us an email, LonghornRepublicPod at gmail.com. My name is Gerald Goodridge. I'm your host this week, like I am every week, and I'm joined by a man who's so excited to talk about Texas football history, Kyle Carpenter. Kyle, how are you? Uh, you know, I, I, I'm good. Uh, I feel like, you know, our typical 45-minute to an hour podcast is not the format. I, I need the... The uh, Dan Carlin hardcore history of Texas will have to uh, will have to follow this one up uh, with you know our, our six hour dive uh, into you know each small town in in Texas. No, we we have a fun. I think one of the cooler projects associated with UT football that I've seen in a few years. Um, interview that we'll do today, and um, you know one of the less fun things that's happened to Texas football in years, Kansas. So yeah, we've got uh, two interviews for you tonight. One we've got. Uh, our friend from the Rock Chalk Pod over at the 1012 Podcast Network, Andy Mitz, on to talk a little KU. And then we've got one of our favorite BON writers, uh, Jonathan Wells, who did a deep dive on Texas football history, looking at the Letterman all-time and where they came from. It's a two-parter on the website. You should absolutely check it out. But we've got him on to talk us through a little bit of his uh, his research and his process for that if you can believe it, 16 days until Texas football kicks off against the ULM Warhawks, which at this point seems like the only guaranteed win in the season, but it's neither here nor there. But we've got game 11 of our season preview. If you want to go back every Thursday for the last, I don't know, four months or so, uh, we've been doing these previews, but we've got... Friend of the show, Andy Mitz of the Rock Chalk Pod and of the 1012 Network on Help Us Preview, the Kansas Jayhawks. Andy, how are you doing today? This is the one our listeners sadly have to look forward to every year to really, really get Circle. a pulse on on Kansas football. It's 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 kind of funny because after last year, I, was, I wasn't sure if you guys were going to let me come back on, so... <laughs> You made the Kansas beats Texas prediction a couple years in a row, and so like I'm gonna give well, you. Well, okay, wait, wait. I made it two years ago, and then the game got canceled twice for COVID. <laughs> or actually, as I like to say, Tom Herman knew that he was gonna get fired by Kansas and didn't want to be the second straight Texas coach to get fired because of a loss of the Jayhawks. So um, I just carried that over. I was, you know, okay. the, the whole the old Vegas let it ride, you yeah, know, and into the next year and it worked out just fine so if if given the chance texas you're saying we'll skirt this game any year natural disaster <laughs> whatever we can drum up to to get out of playing kansas and football i get that look there's a reason you guys are going to the sec <laughs> that's right that's right yeah absolutely we you know any the, the further we can get away from any mangino sized holes in our heart we just you know like it, it, it the sec is a much safer haven you know we, we don't have to worry about the, the nightmares and I, i'm only half kidding if you lose in the sec at least you're losing in a conference where you know it just means more well everyone is ranked in the top 25 so they're ranked losses yeah, even bandy <laughs> <laughs> I think that the, we're trading out a lot of purple for a lot of maroon, so it's kind of a, it's it, you take the good, you take the bad. I don't, I don't necessarily know which one I feel. Um, <laughs> it, they're both they're, whatever. It's fine, but 
Kansas is, you know, one of the one, you know, one of the the more interesting stories of the offseason for me because they returned like 82% of their production from a year ago. A team that was uh, on a positive trajectory toward the end of the year, you know, Lance Leipold. Um, got in his first year 66% of the wins that Kansas had under Les Miles. So, you know, heading into year two of uh, the Leipold era at Kansas, like what are the expectations in, in your mind, uh, Andy, as, as a fan and as somebody who covers the uh, covers the team? Yeah, I mean, it is one of those things where um, you can pretty much talk yourself into anything for the Jayhawks this year, right? Like if you want to make the case – that they're going to, you know, take that momentum and hit the ground running and, and surprise a lot of people and, uh, you know, pile up a few wins, a, a few more than people expect them to. You could make that argument based off of that trajectory. The fact that Jalen Daniels came in in that game against Texas and looked absolutely fantastic in that game and then was able to continue win the next few games. Like, it wasn't just like a, a one-game sort of thing. It was he came in and all of a sudden the offense looks completely different. Um you know, so you can talk about that positive momentum. You can talk about bringing everybody back. And, you know, the the thing that we saw last year, which is a lot different than not just Les Miles, but David Beatty before him and Charlie Weiss before him and Turner Gill before that. Look, yeah, it's bad. Um, you know, they all went for the quick fix, right? Try to find guys that can immediately turn things around, whether it's sustainable or not. The thing that we saw under Lance Leipold in year one, well, really year like zero or, you know, negative 0.25 because of when he actually came in, um, you know, you you actually saw them to have some success, but it was very clear that what they were doing was not geared towards make sure we have success this year. It was get the consistency we need in this program built up, get that foundation built, and then we will build the success off of that. He was very frank when he came in, and like, like most coaches are when they come into this Kansas job, about how tough it is. But Usually you get to the beginning of the season and you get to like that last press conference before fall camp is over, you know, and, and going into the first game and all of a sudden there's this false bravado and there's a whole bunch of, you know, we feel really good about our team. Like we, we feel like everything's going great. You're going to see a big improvement. Like all of this, these, these promises. Leipold going into the first year is like, look, we have some positive signs, but there's a lot of work that we still need to do. And you saw that throughout the year. Like he intentionally set expectations low because one, he could because everybody knew how difficult of a job it is. Two, he has a track record of taking programs and building them and turning things around and getting to that point. So so there's 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 some credibility there, right? You know that he knows what it takes to build a program back from basically nothing. And so he is going to ha- or he was going to have the time to do it anyway. But I think with the improvement that they saw and that consistency and the development of the players, because that's the big thing that Kansas has not had over the last decade is any kind of development of players. You would bring guys in and they would, you know, they would play about as well as you would expect them to in their freshman year. And there was only probably about two or three guys out of an entire 25 man class where you actually saw any development from when they were freshmen to to seniors. And so that's been the biggest problem for the Jayhawks. And we immediately saw development out of these players in year one, you know, when they didn't even have a spring practice to go through stuff. Seeing what they've been able to do here in spring practices, see the way that Kansas has hit the transfer portal. Um, it feels like this is real. The question is, how long is it going to take for them to get things turned around? I have absolutely no doubt that Leipold will get things turned around at Kansas. 
my main question, and honestly the main question for you guys is, is it going to be before Texas leaves to the SEC or after? There's no qualms if y'all want to get good and, and beat U of H. Like, just we'll put them in here. You come to Texas and beat somebody. That's fine. Um, but the, I, I, I agree with you that it is, you know, it's it's a matter of when you start to see those those results. The the interesting thing is, like you, you talked about the portal. Uh, Kansas has had portal activity, but in the past few years, it's usually the best player or series of players heading out, right? With with you know guys who are desirable for 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 other schools, and and that's a good thing, but it hurts the development. You talked about Jalen Daniels, right? He doesn't have Kwame Lasseter to work with. He is going to uh, be be back, right? And, and presumably lock down that that quarterback spot, unless there's uh, some other competition. Who are the other guys that need to be there to help that offense take the the step up? Who, what what should the names we should know? Well, so so Devin Neal is the easy one, right? Like he was the star running back last year for them, did some really great things, especially late in the year. Um, and you actually saw the difference when he went out in the TCU game, how the, you know, the, the defense was able to kind of key in on some other guys. Um, you know, and, and, and most people will remember the name Jared Casey as a guy. He actually has developed into a decent tight end. Um, you know, it wasn't just, again, it wasn't just one play in the Texas game. It was, he followed that up by playing pretty well, catching a couple touchdowns in the next two games and actually developed into the kind of tight end. And it, it's funny because he actually plays a fullback position, but he is too small to be to be credibly listed as a fullback on the roster, so he's a tight end. Um, but, but he plays in the fullback slot for the Jayhawks, which is absolutely hilarious. But, um, you know, it's one of those things where those are like the guys that everybody remembers because of what happened last year. Um, but they have two transfers coming in um, at running back that are uh, Kai Thomas, from uh, Minnesota, I believe it is. I can't, I can't believe I just blanked on where he came from. Uh, but then Semyon Morrison coming from Nebraska, you know, those are two running backs that were honestly rated pretty highly coming out of call or out of high school. Didn't get the opportunities that they wanted at their first stops, but are very talented guys. The question is going to be how well can they integrate them. But you look at this Kansas running back room. I would make the argument that it's probably the deepest running back room in the entire conference. It is. It is has a lot of really good guys. You even, you know, take a look down the line. Um, you know, there are two or three more guys underneath those top three. There are so many guys that when I went to go do my preview, I was just like, I don't like, I don't know how they're going to get enough snaps for all of the guys that really need to be on the field because they have guys that can do pretty much anything. And I think that's the biggest thing is not only do they have a bunch of guys, but they don't do the same things. And so there is an opportunity, I think, for you to see a lot of different running backs do a lot of different things, whether it's in the passing game or the running game. Um, I don't really know, like the, whichever ones are successful early in the year, are the ones you're going to see later in the year. Um, by the time we get to this Texas game here on the schedule, you're going to know what this team is about and how they're playing. But as it stands right now, I could see it going about 15 different ways just from how they're playing in the running back room. They have a lot of wide receivers um, that will also help out. The problem is they do not have a go-to number one wide receiver, like the the, the safety valve for Jalen Daniels, like he had in Kwame Lasseter last year, or, or like Jason Bean had in Kwame Lasseter. Um, you know, they have LJ Arnold, Lawrence Arnold, um, you know, who entered the transfer portal and then a couple days decided to stay at Kansas. Um, he is expected to be one of the big guys, but a guy like Luke Grimm, um, who has played quite a bit since he first got here. He actually played fairly well as a true freshman a few years ago. Um, he is a guy that I'm expecting to take a big step forward. Uh, they have a few other wide receivers. The problem is you you look at who they have, and it's hard to pick out a name and say, oh, yeah, that guy is going to be good. But they have a lot of guys who have potential. 
Um, Douglas Emmeline, the, uh, I, I think that's how you pronounce his last name. I, I actually forgot to ask, but <laughs> he, uh, he also transferred from Minnesota. He is a guy that is more of a possession receiver, a guy that I think is going to fit in really well on this offense and gives them something that most of the other receivers on the roster don't actually have. So, um, they didn't have him for the spring preview. And so you saw a lot of quick passes to the outside, so can kind of spread offense, check down throws, that sort of thing, quick passes to the boundary. Um, I think that's going to be a lot of what they do on offense this year. They will take a few deep shots, but probably not nearly as many as you're used to seeing when you have a guy like Kwame Lasseter that can just burn down the field. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see how they actually do that. But this is definitely my expectation is that this is going to be a much more run heavy team with a kind of short passing game to complement that, to make sure you can't just key in on the runners. One of the things that I think not a whole lot of people are talking about is, is the Kansas offensive line. You know, a year ago, um, they, depending on what, what you look at, total sacks, or I'm a sacks per game guy because I think total sacks is weird. But like third in the conference, they gave up like a, they only gave up like a sack and a third basically per game. And they returned four of those five guys from a year ago. So like what, you know, they're replacing, you know, a relatively big piece, um, in that, on that offensive line. But, you know, they've got, you know, 80% of that production back from last year. So um, what's the, what's the expectation for that group? And how are they going to take a step forward? Or how do you perceive them to take a step forward in 2022 to help out all the skill talent? Yeah, actually, the thing is that, yes, they lost a big piece in Malik Clark. But what I don't think anyone realizes, and honestly, I didn't realize it until I heard them talking about this in the press conference, um, talking about the offensive line. Malik Clark was a guy who is very, very talented, but was not the right fit for what they wanted to do as an offensive line. He, you know, it's not that he didn't have the talent or wasn't able to kind of overcome some of the deficiencies, but the kind of zone blocking scheme that they like to run, what they like to do, does not play into his strengths very well. I mean, and, and, and he is a decent player. He, you know, he, he, Went into camp with the Kansas City Chiefs on an undrafted free agency deal. And so, like, it's not that he doesn't have talent. It's just he didn't fit very well with what they did, but he still made it work. And But what they have coming back this year, they have all the other four guys coming back. The guy who is slated to be the starter is um, Armaj Reed Adams. You know, he is a guy that really hit the weight room um, over the offseason, did a lot of different things. The, the coaches are talking about how he has gotten a lot more agile. He has really kind of toned down and gotten to where they need him to be. They said that, from what I hear, obviously not actually watching the practices, but it sounds like they are very happy with what he brings and that he fills a big hole that they had last year. Again, not because of the actual talent of the player there, but just because it didn't mesh well with what his natural strengths are. And so this should be a much more cohesive unit this year. Um, it's very, it's going to be very interesting. The thing that you have to be worried about with this team is injuries. Um, but the last update that we had is that they have eight or nine guys right now that are kind of fighting to be in that rotation. And the hope that they have coming out of camp is that they will be able to find ways to bring in a bunch of guys on packages. And um, the, the one thing that they talked about a lot across all of the different press conferences I've seen so far is the idea of flexibility, that you get as many guys ready to play as you possibly can, and then you find ways to get them on the field. Um, this is not going to be a case like we've seen in the past where you bring in guys and you're like, this is my guy, this is the main guy, he's going to be on the field as much as possible. It is in very much instead a, we have a collection of guys, we're going to make sure everybody gets a chance to play as it makes sense to help us better our, you know, get to where our goals want us to be. And so, yes, there will naturally be guys who play a whole lot more. Um, you know, a guy like Sam Burt on the defensive line, last year he played sparingly, but he had a very clear role of when he came in 
you know, he is, he is a much improved player. Again, from what I'm hearing from the defensive line coaches, he is doing a lot of different things than he did last year. They've actually talked about they, you know, he is one of the hardest workers that they have on the defensive line and they have a couple packages in mind for how they're going to get him on the field more. And so it's one of those things where, you know, I'm expecting to see a lot of different looks. I'm expecting to see a lot of stuff that I won't expect coming into the year because they are coming up with creative ways to use guys in ways that you probably wouldn't necessarily think. So we talk about, you know, and, and, and I was talking earlier about how when we get to this Texas game, you're probably have a good idea of what Kansas likes to do. But I don't know that you're going to be able to feel confident coming to this game that you know what Kansas is going to do all the time. I, they're not going to be nearly as one-dimensional or or as straightforward as they were last year. Last year, they very much just had to be like a, you know, get our best guys out there, run what we can run, make sure that you're running the things that we know how to run. Um, this year, what they've talked about is they have drilled all the fundamentals. They've drilled everything in, the effort and all of that, into these guys so that they can give them a call, they can go out, and they can run it because they know exactly what they're doing. The big quote that stuck out to me, defensive line, well, really just defense-wise, you know, was they were talking about, um, well, and, and, and I'm sorry, this is actually more offensive line, talking about like all the different techniques and, you know, how you teach guys to do the blocking and all of this stuff. And he said, you know, the main thing that we've been teaching them and the main thing we're looking for is effort because 100% of the time, good effort is going to outweigh any sort of technique that you can learn to try to deal with a defensive lineman coming at you. And so that has been the big focus. That has been everything that I've heard coming out of camp this is a team that is very focused and like you said they didn't give up many sacks last year they also got a lot better on penalties last year that was the probably the biggest area of improvement over like a Les Miles or a David Beatty team those teams used to get penalized all the time and we would wonder all the time like do they even know what they're doing come to find out most of the time they didn't know what they were doing they were getting penalties because they were in the wrong spot they were doing things they weren't supposed to Um, they just weren't prepared for it you know you saw huge dips in penalties last year because that was the number one prerequisite to get on the field is they had to feel like you could be a consistent player that would do what they asked you to do when they asked you to do it. <clears throat> Let's look at the, so you have an identity and especially if you want to run the ball a bit and establish the run, kind of a, a caveat to winning that way is to have a defense that holds up, right? And, and Kansas brings back, I think some good, good linebackers and your top three tacklers, uh, Kenny Logan, Rich Miller, Gavin Porter, um, some, some, some talent there. Um, but it, it was, you know, not to, Put lipstick on a pig. It was one of the the worst statistically defenses in in the country, right? Uh, even Texas managed to get 56 points on them. I'm I'm being uh, intentionally self-deprecating here. Um, <laughs> but you know, uh, what what does the defense look like with all those weapons on the offense? If you know, if this team's going to take that step forward, I, I think it has to probably include a, an improved defense. Is that right? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, really, the hallmark of Kansas defense last year, because what we noticed quite a bit. And you saw it, especially in games like against Oklahoma and honestly, even against Texas, the first half had a very good defensive effort. You know, there were definitely a few teams that were able to score a decent amount, but it wasn't necessarily because defenses were falling all over the place or anything like that. It was just good, you know, good play. Like Coastal Carolina is one that comes to mind where they scored a flurry at the end of at the end of the first half. But it was because of good diagram plays and then mistakes that the offense made. Um but what we saw a lot from this team is that they were extremely thin at basically every position. The, the defensive line was the deepest position, and they barely had enough to fill out the two deep with guys that could consist, consistently play for a decent amount of the game. Um, and so you ran, you were running essentially. I, I actually dove into the defense, and this was the thing that jumped out to me the most. Right, was we had we had basically three cornerbacks 
that played significant time and actually recorded significant statistics. We had three safeties, same thing. We had two linebackers. <laughs> like when you have those small numbers of guys that can actually make an impact, you cannot play them the entire 60 minutes of the game. You have to give them a rest. You have to bring in some of those backups. When there's a such a big drop-off in performance from the starters to the backups, it makes the entire defense look bad, even though you have guys that are actually playing really well. Gavin Potter was playing really well last year. There was just a lot of times where it looked like he was playing worse than he was because uh, you know, someone who was supposed to be covering a guy was out of position. But now... You know, when that guy catches the ball, he was the guy that was on him at the beginning. He was supposed to be passing him off to another guy who wasn't there. It looks bad for Gavin Potter. Similar sort of thing for Kenny Logan Jr. Like, he played phenomenally back at the safety position. And he is the guy that grades out the best from the entire defense, which, you know, makes sense then why he was the selection for the, you know, for, for the Big 12 all preseason team. He played really well. The times where he looked like he didn't know what he was doing, usually it was not his fault. It was because bad positioning or guys that were tired or just, you know, things that were problems because they just didn't have a lot of guys. That's what they did in the transfer portal this year. They went out and found a bunch of guys that can actually play guys that they know that they're going to get something out of at the safety position. They brought in three more guys at the cornerback position. They brought in three more guys, the linebacker position. They brought in three more guys. Like they brought guys who were at either played a decent amount at other locations. They brought in a guy from Louisiana who, who started all 12 games last year. They brought in a guy from Eastern Michigan who started all the games last year. You know, they brought in Marvin Grant from Purdue who started all 13 games last year for the, for the Boilermakers. Like they brought in guys who have played and know what it takes to be able to play at this type of level. Um, again, I don't know how well it's all going to come together, especially early in the year. But what I do have confidence in is that they now have a stable of guys that they can throw out there and feel confident that they can do something, that they have to, you know, potentially figure out what they want to do scheme-wise. But they at least now have the bodies that can actually go out there and cover competently and do what they need to to give them a respectable defense. Is it going to be a top, you know, half of the Big 12 defense? Probably not, because there's a real a lot of really good defenses in the Big 12. But it is going to be, I think, a lot better than it was last year. I would not be shocked you know, to see them up in the, you know, 70 to 80 overall defense range, like, which would be a gigantic improvement for them. I love it. So you, you talked about, you know, gigantic improvement for them or jumping up. Um, so let's, let's kind of put a, a bow on, on kind of the football talk of it. You know, the line for Kansas, two and a half games, Vegas has it at. Uh, but like, let's, let's put all of that outside of the conversation. But, you know, when you look back at the end of the year, if it's, you know, December, January, and you're thinking about re- reminiscing on Kansas having a good year, how will you know or how will you judge this as a successful season for the Kansas Jayhawks? Look, it's going to be a successful season when I'm getting on the plane to go to the bowl. No, I'm, I'm joking. I mean, uh, look, a successful season really isn't about the win-loss record. You know, I, I actually have a very bold prediction for what I think the Jayhawks are going to do this year, and we'll get to that here in just a minute, I, I'm assuming. But what we're really looking for is competent play. Like, this is like, – it sounds kind of reductive to say it that way. But what we're looking for is a team that when you see them on the field, they look like they know what they're doing. Whether they can do it to a degree that will allow them to be in positions to win or not, that's a completely different matter. Um, the teams that have a similar level of talent as them, I'm thinking like TCU, Texas Tech, West Virginia, they have to be competitive in those games. Um, you know, the games against teams like Oklahoma, Texas, and Baylor, and Oklahoma State, who all have significantly more levels of talent, you have to 
give you give people a reason to be excited about those games going into them and not come out of them losing by 50 points. Um, I, I think what we have to see is that improvement over the course of the year, because if you really think about it, this is still, this is really the first full year under Lance Leipold for the Jayhawks. Like they did not have spring practice the first year he came in. He came in, he, he was hired the day before the spring game in his first year. Um, and what they did in that first year was absolutely phenomenal. You get to the you know last four games of the year, that's about the amount of time in terms of practice time and time together with a team that you would normally have if you had an entire spring practice. So the fact that they had a really good final, you know, four, well, three, four games of the season, really five if, if you count the Oklahoma game, um, you know, that is huge. That is fantastic for this team. And it's a really good reason to think that they're going to take that step forward. You do have to be a little bit worried about, you know, look what happened at Buffalo. He had a pretty good, you know, year the first year. The second year they took a dip down to 2-10. and 10, And that really was just because everything was switching over. I do think the foundation here is a little bit better. I think the base of talent that he actually had coming into this job here at Kansas was a lot better than what they had at Buffalo. Um, you know, the one thing that Les Miles did really well was recruit some really talented guys to come to the Jayhawks. He just had absolutely no what to do, no idea what, how to pull them together into a cohesive team once they were here. So, you know, Leipold came in with a pretty big advantage of a lot of guys who were talented enough to really be on a Big 12 roster and be part of a successful Big 12 team that just didn't know what they were doing and really needed that direction, and they have that direction now. The thing that jumps out to me the most, you know, you hear about what's going on in practice, and every single one of the coaches has said half of their job is done for them. Like half the time they have to figure out what they're going to be doing because they go to coach a player. Someone on the field, one of the upperclassmen on the field is already doing the coaching that he was about to do. And that's when you know you have a team that is bought in, that it knows what they're doing and is paying attention to the coaches and, and is, you know, is ready to take that step forward. Again, it's all about execution at this point. But if we can look and we can see, hey, look, you know, the scheme was good. You know, he just got he just, you know, had a bad angle or something to that effect. Like there was something that went wrong on the play, but you can understand what it was and it was something that they can fix. And it's something that they're not making the same mistake every single week, week in and week out. You have to feel good about this, whether they, you know, go two and 10 or they go, you know, five and seven or like whatever they actually get to. Um, I think that there is a lot of room for them to potentially have some success this year and to win and surprise some people. Um, but you know, I, I, I don't think that you measure success for this team based off wins and losses, unless, of course, they, you know, only win the first game against Tennessee Tech. Then then something else is going on because they, they are too talented to lose every single game, barring some sort of injury or some, you know, weird out of left field. Somebody just goes on a complete tear. Um, so it, it is definitely one of those things where I am expecting to see maybe, you know, three, four wins um, at, at, at a minimum. But if something happens and I can look back and I can say, hey, that makes sense, you know, turns out TCU was a lot more talented than we thought they were. And so they, you know, they, they beat us pretty badly. Like if I can make sense of why those sort of things happened without it just being we screwed up, then I'll then I'll be happy with the year. I think that's a good place to leave all of our logical and formal conversation and take us into what I just, Gerald doesn't know this, just coined the Longhorn Lightning Round. We're going to take a Ooh, rapid, yeah, that's, that's new. That's, up with thus far. I, it's better that's, than all the rest. That's pretty good. 11 it's better, minutes in. 
Yeah, it's been better than anything I've tried before. This is the uh, this is the just you don't need to justify. You don't need to give all those reasons. Speak with your heart. Speak with your gusto. What type of spicy, zesty hot takes do you have your mitts on? So I will uh, say I am very impressed that you saved your best work for Kansas, much like Texas is probably going to do on the field this year. That's that's it. You know, we have a couple games circled on our calendar, right? It's OU because it's OU. It's Alabama because, I mean, come on, Alabama's coming to town, and then it's Kansas. So, you know, the big three. So at least I, I got it by the third one of, of exactly. the Troy Oika. <laughs> um, all right, so give us your spiciest take then. What what do you what are you holding on to that you're ready to unleash to our viewers? What What is this win total prediction that you have for the <laughs> Kansas Jayhawks? So it's been actually – honestly, I'm kind of surprised you guys haven't seen it. But I said it on the 1012 podcast at the beginning of the year – um, I recently re-upped it a few times because, look, if I'm going to make the prediction, I'm going to stand by it. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Okay, I'll deal with it. I've been wrong before. I'm going to be wrong again in the future. But I predicted that Kansas is going to beat Kansas State to end the year to get a 6-6 six and six record and go to a bowl game. Wow. Yes. Uh, Smashing you, the over is what you, you're telling yes. me. Oh, gosh. Hammer that over. If you have not bet on that, hammer the over now. I love it right here. Rap airhorn. This is this is uh, this is hot take central. I love it. I love I love I, I actually like you for the over two and a half, but 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 doubling it and then some change. Uh, look, I'm, lo- look, I'm Kansas, loving it. Kansas could hit the over before week four is over. Because if you think about it, they've got Tennessee Tech in the first game. They go to West Virginia and West Virginia lost a lot. Yes, they brought in JT Daniels, but they are dealing with a lot of changes, a lot of things that are different. Um, so while they probably won't be favored going into that game, it is really easy to imagine that Kansas could go in with the consistency that they have and actually win that game. Um, probably not going to beat Houston, but you never know. I mean, it is Houston. They completely collapsed against Texas Tech last year, and they're playing Texas Tech the week before they play Kansas this year. So we'll see how all that goes. And then Duke comes to town. And look, Kansas was very competitive with Duke last year and faded at the end of the year. Kansas got better while I think Duke got worse, and Duke has a brand-new head coach. So there is a very real possibility that Kansas could be 3-1 and one going into week five. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things where I think those that bet the over are going to get it paid out pretty quickly. Um, it may not be by week four or week five, but, I, I, I mean, there's enough potential games for them to grab in the Big 12 where they are not that, you know, poorly compared to the other team in terms of talent where you have to think they're going to get at least one of those. And so if they come out, you know, two and two by the time non-conference is over and they get just one in the big 12, that gets you to that three pretty easily. And that also probably gets you your coach firing of the year. Cause I think if West Virginia loses to Kansas, Neil Brown might be shown the door. They're looking for an excuse to get rid of that guy anyways. It seems like so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh. They, they, they probably are. Although I will say, I do think there's a very good chance that if he loses that game in week two, that they end up firing him. And then it might get to the end of the year and you're like, well, wait a minute. Losing to Kansas may not actually have been as bad as we thought it was. I mean, they probably still would have fired him anyway because, like you said, he's in year four. He hasn't lived up to expectations yet. Um, Losing to Kansas, I think think this is the last year, though, that losing to Kansas is probably automatically going to get you fired. It, this seems like a fire him before he can save his job kind of situation. Can't, <laughs> yeah, like, well, that, that, that was game. that was the Matt Wells uh, yeah, you know, yeah. special last year where they yep. they had that horrible loss to Kansas State where they collapsed at the very end. You know, when they were one win away from a bowl game, <laughs> and it was like we need to fire him before he can qualify for a bowl game, and people that. think he needs to stay. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay, so 
there was a conversation over the weekend where, you know, Mark Stoops and, and John Calipari were going back and forth about, um, you know, basketball school versus football school. And, and at, even with Kansas football on the come up, there's still a basketball school through. And oh, through. oh, for sure. For sure. But, but the, the question that, that's in my mind is, much like Kentucky, it would take a lot for Kansas to ever become a football school. But like, what would it, if this was to happen, what would it take for Kansas to become a football school rather than a basketball school? I'd love to hear your thoughts. There's literally only one way that I ever think it could happen. And we all know it's absolutely never going to happen. It would require both Kansas to get a five-year postseason ban from the NCAA for this whole FBI thing. <laughs> and... Kansas football to go on and win three of the next four national championships. Like that's literally, it has to be that drastic. Okay. This is a basketball, like Kansas has an argument for being the best basketball program ever. Sure. Um, look, Kentucky is absolutely fantastic. People talk about Duke all the time. Kansas has the most wins thanks to this year. You know, they have pro- arguably the best active coach now. Um, like it is one of those things where it's going to take a lot for Kansas to not be a basketball school ever. Like, I would be shocked if it ever actually happens. Um, I mean, think about the last time Kansas football did something phenomenal, you know, winning the 2008 Orange Bowl. What did Kansas basketball do? Oh, yeah, they won the national championship that year. <laughs> like, I don't think the basketball team is ever going to let the football team one-up them. I mean, they even got into a fist fight, the basketball team versus the, the football team. So, come on. It's perffectly fair. All I say is if if the uh, the bagmen make you give up uh, basketball victories, maybe we can th- slide a, a couple football uh, victories in there too and erase those. but no, I, I kid. Um, I've heard scholars say that the the most beautiful word in the English language is cellar door. I think there's an argument to be made for walk on fullback. I think it's just gorgeous. it rolls <laughs> off the tongue. but now we say former walk on fullback as you alluded to Jared Casey now. Getting getting his run, he had an absolute moment in the sun against Texas. For Texas fans, you probably remember the gentleman, uh, the walk-on, who uh, caught the the two-point conversion to win the game. He he went on to get what I think is like the most pure nil deal. Walk-on has this big moment. Applebee's immediately like hometown hero. Like it just worked. What is your all-time? dream nil pairing if you could take anyone any kansas basketball kansas football any jayhawk of all time and pair them up with whatever business industry or or sponsor uh wants to have them if you could draw it up oh this is a tough one because i you know it's hard it's hard to think of something that would be better than the jared casey applebee's i mean especially since you know like the pick two and he's like you always go for two like i mean come on that was like perfect it's like, but I have to imagine it would probably involve Mitch Lightfoot if there was something that was better. And I don't know how much you know about this, but at one point he got the moniker Prison Mitch. Um, <laughs> kind of like, uh, you know, you remember from The Office? I forget which character oh, yeah. it was, but Prison yeah. Mike. Prison Mike. Yeah, Prison Mike. Okay, I was thinking Mike. I was like, wait, is that right? Am I, am I misremembering? <laughs> I was not a gigantic Office fan, but I know enough of the references to feel like I know what's going on. Um, but yeah, so he got that moniker. It was a huge, like, there's a Twitter parody account. There's all kinds of stuff. There's actually people who reference him as, like, Prison Mitch when they walk up to him. It's absolutely hilarious. Um, you know, especially given, you know, how he represents himself. Like, you know, um, so it, it's one of those things. I, I, but 
to, to play off of that, I don't know, some, some sort of like security service with like ADT or something like that, I think would be absolutely hilarious just for the irony of it. But it is really hard, you know, to beat that Jared Casey one, just given the circumstances and the whole, you know, slogan and everything. And I mean, and like you said, that was the entire intent of NIL was to allow those players that aren't going to go on and make a bunch of money playing professionally to profit off of the most recognizable times of their lives, which is when they're playing college football or, or any college sport. And so that is like, that is the one NIL deal that I think everybody absolutely loved. Even the people that were the unfortunate victims of, I loved you know, what, what actually made him famous for it. So. Oh, it was incredible. And it's like DeColdis Crawford, you know, just did an air conditioning commercial this week. Like it's incredible. Oh, I know. That was, that was awesome. <laughs> so, and the, the other one, I think the low hanging fruit is Perry Ellis, right? Cause that guy came out wearing, you know, a suit and tie. So it feels like. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Of wearing course. a suit and tie his entire life. So I feel like it's a, it's a perfect fit. So we'll, we'll end on, um, the, the hardest question we're going to ask you all night. So I need, uh, night. I need you to say one nice thing about the Kansas State Wildcats. One nice thing about the Kansas State Wildcats. <laughs> uh, let's see. One nice thing about the Kansas State Wildcats. Um. Oh, my gosh. That is really tough. <laughs> no, like, it really is. Because, because I've had some very not-so-great interactions with some Kansas State fans because they did not – they were not thrilled with my uh, – pick of Kansas beating the the Wildcats to end the year in football. So I guess I guess the one you know what? I the one thing that I will say has absolutely nothing to do with football because of course That's okay. Um I really like what uh Coach Tang is doing now with the basketball team. It was a well past time for Bruce Weber to move on. And you know, if it took them waiting that long because they were waiting for the right opportunity to give him a job um, then I am all for it. I think he's going to be phenomenal for them there, coming off of that Baylor, um, you know, coaching staff. And so, like, it's just going to it's going to make Big Twelve basketball that much harder. Um, you guys are going to get to to miss a good portion of that. But uh, look, Big Twelve basketball is not something to be messed with. And, and we both like Coach Tang a lot. So I mean, it, it it's yeah, it any there there isn't really a, a weakness in that in that conference going forward. Except maybe Texas not being there. We've argued on the show that the Big 12 is the best basketball conference in the country, top to bottom. I think there are some higher top-heavy conferences, but I think the uh, Big 12, and again, the Big 12's top of conference would go up against any other conference in uh, the country. But and Andy, yeah. I know we 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 both have kids, and so we've had long days. But so we'll <laughs> let you go, brother. If they, people want more of what you've got, your your spicy Kansas takes. I don't know. Is that the first time spicy in Kansas have been said in the same sentence? I'm not sure. But no, spicy no, Kansas because takes. I've been throwing spicy Kansas takes out for a while. So I love it. Where can they go to find more of your spicy Kansas takes? So you can catch me on my show, the rock chalk podcast. Uh, you can find that on Twitter at rock chalk pod. Me personally, I am on Twitter at Andy Mitz 12. Um, I actually run the sports illustrated fan nation site that covers the Jayhawks, which is blue wings rising. Um, that's blue wings And of course I am on every Monday. Once the season gets started with Philip over on the 10, 12 podcast. Um, the flagship podcast of the Tentol Network. So I got a lot of places you can find me. Tell Philip we're still waiting on our invites back. <laughs> okay, okay. We'll get you for sure. I, I don't know when. I don't actually get to run that show, so like I can't like make him bring you guys on, but I, I know you guys are on the list. 
It's fine. My feelings are only slightly hurt. No, there's there's a bouncer, there's a rope, it's fine, we get it, we have to wait yeah, our yeah. turn. Yeah, we don't have look, the right look, shoes on. I get there, it. I get there it. is there is a limit to the number of people that we can cram in there at once. So <laughs> Fair enough. it's a Fair very enough. popular place. Fire marshal, I get it. Yeah, yeah, fire hazard. I get it. Alright, well, if you want more Andy, listen to him on all those. Uh tell your friends, share this podcast, uh with, with all of them and, and we'll have you back next year, I'm sure. If not, well before then, maybe basketball season we'll chat with you. Always a pleasure, my friend. Appreciate it. This is Advertiser Content, brought to you by Frito-Lay. Hello, I'm Chip Murphy, here to get you ready for the big tournament. Tonight we'll break down... We break down who will be cutting... Cut! What are you two doing? Sorry, Chip. Prez here got his feathers ruffled when I told him Ruffles has zero chance of winning the title. And I was letting Dip know that she is not taking into account Ruffles' iconic ridges. Guys, it's March. We have to start talking about the tournament. We are. It is the 2023 Frito-Lay Snack-It. We're talking about big-time matchups between Cheetos, Smart Food, Lay's, Sun Chips, and more. Just head to the Frito-Lay Snack Bracket and vote for your favorite chip, pretzel, or dip for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. This sounds great. Keep up the good work. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends 4-3-2023. Void wherever hit Here's worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to Cars.com. It's magical. So we've got a, a second interview for you today. We're not just previewing Kansas today. We've got a friend of ours, one of the other uh, writers on BON, kind of a historian of uh, sorts, I guess is the best way to say it. It also uh, helps us keep up with high school football around the states. Jonathan Wells, the man himself, is on. He put in uh, hours, years of his life putting together a historical piece for BON. So we wanted him to come on and share a little bit of that with us. Man, how are you doing today? Doing good. Thanks for having me. So, I mean, you are, uh, you have a very interesting niche. Gerald and I just kind of spout opinions and we have a little bit of facts, but you are a true, true researcher, a true historian. You probably know as much about the depths of, uh, UT storied history, you know, the true annals, uh, of the year. I mean, Bill Little's clearly passing the torch to somebody. It's, it's, uh, you, you gotta be the front runner, but no, I mean, how did you get a passion for, for, for this kind of, uh, deep and long view of the horns. Well, I've been a, just a big fan since I was a small kid and uh, kind of became a sports nut around first or second grade. And uh, my dad was kind of the one who got me into uh, having an appreciation of uh, sports history in general and uh, Southwest Conference history in particular and just history of the various teams and leagues around the state. And he's, uh, my dad was a history teacher at the high school and junior college level for a long, long time. And so he was, you know, in college in the late sixties, early seventies and told me just a whole bunch of stories about interesting stuff that happened in that era. 
uh, with the Longhorns, other colleges, Dallas Cowboys, things like that. And this particular project didn't really come about until somewhat you know, recently, I guess, the last couple of years. Um, uh, I've written for BON off and on for the last 10 years and mostly concerning recruiting. And, and I'd kind of throw little tidbits about uh, high school football history and Longhorn history in there from time to time, but never anything really full blown. And um, well, um, just being a sports nut and also kind of a stats nut, <laughs> uh, trivia nut, that kind of thing. I just had this long-standing curiosity about uh, where these Longhorns uh, over the years had come from, um, like what high schools had produced the most, or what towns, things like that, and and it was kind of a subtopic that I, I never saw discussed in any great detail, but every great now and then I'd see a Twitter conversation about, oh, these studs that came from Houston Lamar, these other greats from uh, from North Shore, or uh, you'd see some of the old timers talking about all those team captains from the 60s that were all from Cleburne, all you know, one after <laughs> each other, it seemed like. And, um, and this was just something that I wondered, has anybody ever compiled something like that? Has anybody ever gone to whatever depths it would take to uh, find out uh, where or what city or what places had produced uh, the most of them? And I, I could never find anything like that. And um, I've certainly not read every Longhorn history book. I've not really read any cover to cover, but I browsed a lot of them, uh, bought several, have run across a number at half price books, places like that. And, um, so I've seen some of the, the major ones, like the uh, like the Lou Maisel book from 1970 that covered the entire history of the program up to that point, which is really the first uh, comprehensive history of the program. Uh, and his book, uh, the very last pages of it had uh, what was at that time the all-time letterman for the program from 1893 to 1969. Uh, and his list also included uh, hometowns for all of them. That's the only time I've ever seen something like that. Because uh, if you look on the, the media guide that they put out every year, you look at the um, media or the all-time letterman list that uh, you can find uh, on the website, it's going to tell you the names and when they lettered. And that's about it, mm. uh, which is the case for most schools. Um, if you're a fan of Alabama or Michigan or Colorado or USC, their letterman lists have a lot more detail in that regard. So if if one of their fans wanted to do this kind of project, like uh, compiling who went or how many players from this or that school went to this team, they could do it in like one tenth the time <laughs> it took me because it's all it's basically all right there. But um, but when I first started, I truly did not intend to go as in depth as I ended up going because. Uh, I knew enough about what information was available to know that uh, if you went onto the UT football website, they do have a page that has the program's all-time rosters. And if you look at this year's roster, it's going to have lots of information, like the names, the jerseys, the major you know, hometown, the school, lots of other things, and like a mini bio almost. The further back you go, the less information it's going to have. Sure. And uh, 1947 is as far back as you're going to get uh, with a roster that tells you hometown or high school. Mm. So when I first, sorry, when I first started, I think when I first opened up that spreadsheet and labeled it, I think my original intent was only to cover like 1960 to now. 
just because <laughs> of that reason. Right. Like, why would I even try look finding out where these 1920s guys went to school? That just seemed crazy to me. And so when I first started, I, I was really just focusing on the last you know 60 years or so. Um, and I always like having more information than I think I'll need just in case. So, uh, so even those guys back to 47 that I could actually find, I was uh, also writing down uh, their hometown, their high school, if I found it. But for the most part, I was just kind of skipping over the names before that. Um, and then just the longer I worked on this, the long, the more tools and that I discovered, the more research methods and all that. I looked at the list that I had and, and my, on my spreadsheet, I had one sheet that was just, here's all the ones that I found on sheet two. Here's all the ones I don't know where they're from. And the longer I worked on it, sheet two just got shorter and shorter. And um, eventually figured out that I'm finding most of these guys, even into the 1890s. And uh, at this point, there's less, I don't know what the number is now, but there's less than 70 out of 2,290 or so total lettermen that uh, that I just have not been able to find any specific connection uh, to a particular high school, which is, you know, that's like 97% of them I've found at this point. 20 basically 2300 lettermen is 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 to put a fine point on it so as you looked at the the research like what was the what was the biggest surprise you found as you were like looking through categorizing these things like what was your biggest surprise uh doing the research i don't know if i'd call it a surprise because i had no real expectation of who would be at the top of the list Uh, i was kind of surprised that austin was just so far ahead of everybody else (laughs) i guess i was kind of surprised by some of these smaller towns that you never hear of today, like that are, at, if they still have a high school, they're at the two A or three A level mm. or, or below. Like some of these towns that you would never think of as a place where a recruiter of the last thirty years would ever think to go, who had you know, four or five, six or seven Longhorns that came from there long, long ago. So that was um, that was a bit of a surprise. So you know you, you think you, you said Austin was was far ahead. You think of the big cities, right? If you're, you're Houston and you're Dallas, and Gerald and I are both from San Antonio, so we we viewed your your list with a San Antonio eye as well. Uh, all our alma mater, I didn't see in the top list, uh, but uh, I don't know if there's many from Samuel Clemens and Shirts, Texas. But uh... I thought you might ask them about them. <laughs> um, from what I found, uh, there are zero from Clemens. You know, th- there is a current recruit who uh, we we thought was between Texas and A&M for a four-star receiver, but he recently uh, moved to Smithson Valley, so he wouldn't even probably uh, technically count. Tom Tommy Bush was another receiver who went to UGA, but uh, we uh, yeah, the the pipeline. If if it was, I, it must have been yeah before our time. But so so besides just selfishly, you know, every person asking you about their specific school, um, you know, th- there's a difference between kind of the new school. And I like in your, your article, you broke it down with the post 1970 pipeline to give that view and then kind of the all time uh, view. And obviously Westlake shot to the top of, of the, the current. Uh, but, you know, if, if you don't mind telling the readers uh, or the, the listeners, your, your soon to be readers when they follow out uh, and check out the article, I was a little surprised that, you know, in, in a city as burnt orange as Austin, in fact, it was the Maroons who, uh, who, who took the, the number one spot was, uh, were, were they a, a powerhouse before the Westlakes came, came around? 
think it was more that they were just the only high school in town back in the <laughs> okay. segregated era for a very long time. I, sure. I touched on that a little bit uh, in that section, but I mean, Austin, it's of course humongous now. There's, I don't know how many high school they've, they've got, but, um, unless Wikipedia is fooling me, it appears to have been the only high school, public high school that white students would have been gone to in Austin up until maybe the very early fifties. And wow. so, uh, Austin high, uh, I mean, they won a state title. They played for a couple others. They were at least good enough that they nobody would have thought they were a bad team. I think in that first you know fifty years of the century um, of the twentieth century, um, so they weren't like a dynasty. I don't think they ever would have been considered that. But um, but they're right there in all the different campuses where that high school was. I would assume they've never been more than two or three miles from UT at any point. And sure. And if you've got, you know, your pick of the local talent, they appear to have had a lot of them. And I mean, if UT had been located in Houston, maybe the same thing would have happened at uh, at one of those schools, or you know, pick any other big city. There probably would have been much higher numbers at whatever school was putting out the most uh, talent there at that time. We know we have you on, and, and you're a bit of history buff. We got it. We have to talk about um, one. I, I, I don't want to like reveal the whole top ten on the podcast because I want people to like actually go and like read the article that you put a bunch of work into. Um, um, but, but we, you know, you know this, this week, week unfortunately, unfortunately, sadly, uh, Steve Worcester, long, 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 long legend, legend you know, national, national champion, champion. He wasn't, wasn't born, born as originally, originally from Texas, Texas but, but uh, did, did go, go to Bridge City, City which, which, which has, has put, put out, out a couple of, of you know, famous, famous longhorn players. players. So I think, you know, as, as we think, think about, about you know, the guy that they called Big Woo, like, that, 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 that Houston, Houston area, the Bridge City, City area, area and like, like that, that uh, coastal, coastal area, area made, made a couple of appearances on the list. And I'd love to uh, just talk about, like, from your perspective, like, the impact of that area of the state, state on, on, on the school, school history. history. Um, yeah, I, I, that's not really something I, I delved into too much. I was just more <laughs> interested in compiling. But um, but when I when I got into making notes on this school or that or or really looking at you know who was a standout from one school or another there there were quite a lot from there um i mean port arthur is is one from that golden triangle southeast texas area and uh there wasn't really any other right there that was at that top that it was high enough that they made it into the top 10 but there were several others uh like old orange high school which uh you know, it's changed names and then consolidated. Now it's West Orange Stark, but there was, I think, only eight or nine from there. But at least half of them were just really, really good players in the 20s or 30s. Um, uh, some of the Beaumont schools, uh, none of none of the Beaumonts were really high, but Beaumont's one of those weird towns where they've had like every school there has been consolidated or merged at least one at once at some point. And, but there's a lot of standouts uh, in that area. Well, if you just want to give one person to pick from the region, I think you probably would have gone with, with Steve Worcester, right? So, I mean, all American, all state, uh, you, you wrote an article just about him when, when the news passed as well. So you did a little, uh, have some information there. Just tell the, maybe our younger readers who didn't watch him, maybe, you know, know those teams, but don't know every player on those, uh, championship teams. How, how big of an impact was he in, in DKR's, you know, uh, 60, 70s kind of dominant era? There's a lot of good books that'll, and probably a lot of Bill Little articles that'll tell you a lot more about, uh, what he meant and what his, uh, class meant than I, than I could ever uh, say with much authority, but 
Um, but you read about him and the other recruits he came in with. They, you know, he was what we would now call the bell cow of that class, the, the Worcester group, as they called it. Um, and I, I don't know how many um, signees they had. Like, you know, th- this day and age, it would always be between 20 and 25 or 27. I, I'm sure they had a lot more then, but but there were just a lot of standouts that came in at the same time he did. There were you know, four other guys that were all American a bunch of other starters and and I think they knew early on that this was going to be a talented group because uh, up until 1972 uh, freshmen were not allowed to play varsity uh, football in the college level um and so uh they still had freshman teams back then and so him and his group they they went undefeated in uh, freshman team play with the Southwest Conference and uh, and a lot of them made the all Southwest Conference freshman team and yeah, I think everybody knew he was going to be a stud and several of the others were going to be starters. And and once they get up to the varsity level the next year, 68, they win three straight uh, conference titles and then uh, win a, a national title outright in 69 and uh, technically win a national title in 1970 just because of the coaches poll that uh, was taken before the bowl game lost to Notre Dame. So that's still a claimed uh, title. But, uh, but that, that him... Um, he was the leader of uh, what might be the most consequential recruiting class that the, the school's ever had. I mean, you might could make an argument for uh, Vince Young, some of the others in his uh, class. That, that's not a topic I've looked into very much, but uh, but definitely one of the most impactful uh, recruits and recruiting classes that the Longhorns have seen. You know, when you there's there's that fun connection now. You talk about consequential recruiting. He was in that same kind of era. I think he finished behind Archie Manning for in the Heisman voting his senior year. And so uh, consequential recruiting, it comes full circle. Now we've got Arch Manning coming to the university of Texas, because <laughs> bring it all, bring it all full circle. Well, Jonathan, man, we, we appreciate the time. I know you've got uh, family and you've got the, the kids are starting school and all that, but we want to, we want people to go out and um, check out your articles on burn orange nation. It's linked there, but if they want to follow you and, and what you've got going on, man, where can they, where can they find you on the internet? Twitter. I can be, found uh, at jwells 1982 awesome and then you are again you you are the uh, you kind of help us keep up with recruiting a bit and in high school uh, football throughout the year you do um one of my favorite things to read while i'm like you know the kids are napping or whatever on the weekends is the uh the high school wrap up that you that you do every week which is always great great to read it, it keeps me i can't keep up with all of it I'm, I'm not currently in the state of texas so uh, it's always great somebody with their finger on the pulse helps me keep mine closer to it yeah that's something that I've had a lot of fun doing the last, you know, I think five out of the last six or six out of the last seven. I've, I can't keep track. I, <laughs> I remember the first year I did that was a real fun year. Cause that was uh, when Shane Bouchelle was a senior and Sam Ellinger was a junior. So I was keeping up with both of their <laughs> seasons along with all the other recruits, which was easier back then. Cause the Charlie strong era, I think they had like 12 commits most of that year. So <laughs> there, there weren't that many guys to keep up with. And then, uh, some of the the peak years of Tom Herman, where there might be 20 recruits in seven different states. So it's not as simple as, uh, I mean, the way I tend to be uh, a completist and as <laughs> thorough and always looking for some little angle that you're not going to find somewhere else. I'm always poking into a little bit about you know, who are they playing in, you know, this place in California or, or not Ohio, Florida, whatnot, but um but yeah, that's been a lot of fun and sometimes a lot more work or some years a lot more work than others. But but it's um, kind of made me a fan more of the players than uh, 
teams, I guess, um, and maybe a lot of other people experience that uh, as they get older. I'm still, of course, I always want the Longhorns to win, regardless of who they're playing. But uh, but you follow these seasons by these um, you know recruits. Some of them end up signing, and sometimes you follow Damian Miller, and he doesn't end up signing, or you follow some other guy and become a big fan, and oh no, he's going to LSU or TCU <laughs> or whatnot. But um, but it's been fun uh, doing that. Um, last several years and and getting to kind of put uh, just a little you know, once a week thing that somebody can just read if they're interested in finding out oh how is that receiver doing or or is that running back you know any good after all <laughs> are you and and are, can we assume you're doing it this year coming up in a couple of weeks undecided <laughs> all right uh, well the folk the folks will have to turn into to burn orange nation and hit refresh constantly to see if uh if there's any new content, but at the very least, uh, I can't recommend highly enough a two-part series currently up there from uh, from our friend in Longhorn uh, football history extraordinaire. Uh, thank you so much for for coming on on, on the podcast. Well, sure. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. All right, Gerald. Let's take a look now at the world through some burnt orange lenses. Uh, more burnt orange lenses, and take a look at uh, what's going on in the world of sports. NFL preseason on top of mind. Uh, Sam Ellinger looked good, Gerald. Like I'm not afraid to say it. He looked he looked like a like an NFL quarterback uh, in his his uh, maybe longest uh, most productive stretch to date. <laughs> the man Samuel Ellinger, he absolutely needs like he's a, he's a serviceable NFL quarterback. Like, and I wouldn't be I would love for him to have like the Colt McCoy career career trajectory where he's just kind of constantly hanging out hanging around in the league you know, making money, but not necessarily having to do a whole lot for it, which is great. <laughs> but like, you know, if he puts, if this would be a great fantasy, like line from him, 88 yards, two touchdowns, 24 rushing, that gets you a solid, like 12, like 18 to 20 points from a backup quarterback. Get it done. Good stuff. Yeah. And both the uh, touchdowns were nice. You saw his time in Texas preparing him when the pa uh, pocket collapsed. He stepped up and made, uh, made throws kind of, uh, out of the original pocket. So again, just University of Texas. Off schedule, they call that. That's right. Pay, paying off the, the things he learned while on the 40 acres. Uh, one of my favorite things of the, the preseason slate was, speaking of just paying off of the 40 acres, P.J. Locke had an interception, and Caden Stearns was also uh, in the defensive secondary, and he immediately ran and jumped to celebrate with his Longhorn teammate. Uh, and I don't know. I just I love seeing Longhorns in the NFL on the same team and not just like, oh, there's two Longhorns here, but who genuinely seem to like have that bond. Uh, so I hope both of them just just rock it out this year for the Broncos. Broncos, uh, I mean, they, they, might, they might have a come up. They finally got a quarterback. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, and they also have Calvin Anderson protecting him, and, and Beck also throwing in blocks. There's a lot of Longhorns in Denver, uh, and Lewis Hamilton. Uh, there was a <laughs> one game that featured two. There's a piece of nostalgia if you're a certain vintage of Texas fan. We haven't had a ton of elite years here lately, but a good year with these two guys catching the ball. Colin Johnson and Lil Jordan Humphrey went against each other. Uh, Colin Johnson had seven catches for 82 yards. Lil Jordan Humphrey six catches for 62 and a touchdown. Hopefully both of those guys are going to be contributors this season. Johnson with the New York Giants and Lil Jordan Humphrey with the Patriots. So both of those guys hopefully can 
make a mark. It always hurts me when when Longhorns end up on the Patriots. Like they're gonna win something big usually, but you know Texas <laughs> players get uh, Super Bowl championships with the Patriots. But it also just hurts me a little bit. I understand that, Gerald. So uh, look here, here we're we're all about awards here. So and awards that don't mean anything. So if we keep it in the <laughs> NFL, the NFL releases their annual top 100, uh, and there were two Longhorns um, that, that were in it. I think. The full list is out. At least the first half of the list is out. Um, but two Longhorns came in in the the 100 to 50 range. Uh, your boy, Mr. Quandre Diggs, at 72. The giant. And then a name that uh, you don't usually see, a kicker in the NFL's top 100. First kicker to ever be ranked uh, since they've been releasing that annual list, Justin Tucker. I think 94 for him is embarrassingly low. They need to, to redo their algorithm of how they're scoring <laughs> kickers. I would take him over, like, like most of the league's receivers, like three quarters of the <laughs> running backs. Like if you're just building a team, like, come on, man, like Justin Tucker, number like 27. The first one to be ranked though is a big deal, right? Like that's how good he is. He it is. is to be the first of anything is generally either a really, really good or really, really bad thing. And so we'll go with the really, really good on this one. <laughs> I love that. All right. And speaking of really, really good, Lexi Mismo and Trinity Byers were named to the preseason all big 12 team. Uh, one of three teams. Uh, that's just the first team. They didn't do multiple teams. One of three teams with multiple selections joining TCU and OSU. Again, they're, they're sophomores. They were amazing as freshmen. Both of them, uh, both national team players like both just absolute rock stars and we're gonna we're gonna see a lot more from those two the big 12 soccer is gonna be a bit of a bit of a fist fight this year they've got some good squads there so uh, i'm excited to watch that absolutely another sport that uh has has some talent in its conference some talent on the 40 acres men's golf uh has two uh players will compete in the 2022 u.s Amateur, both ranked in the top 35 in the world amateur rankings. That's freshman Kristen Moss, who's the top-ranked amateur in South Africa, will be coming to the 40 Acres uh, this season. And then Travis Vick, who everyone remembers from his bucket hat and ice in his veins putt, uh, will both be playing uh, starting, I think, when this podcast comes out, uh, in Paramus, New Jersey. They play uh, through August 21st. Speaking of championship teams, Gerald, how do you replace Peyton Stearns? You, you, you may not be able to. It just she's one of a kind type of talent. But the defending champion women's tennis wants to uh, to, to keep that title. They they went out and, and made a big splash, and I don't mean that because they took a wave from Pepperdine, but they nice. uh, they yes indeed they literally took one of the best singles players in the country uh, in uh, Taisia. Pachkovleva, as we all know, um, originally from Russia, has spent the past two seasons in uh, the beautiful, uh, sunny California. Um, like, just legit, might slot in as our, our number one, or maybe number two singles immediately. Just, you know, a Pepperdine team that, that won the national championship in 21 and, and um, you know, or made it to the national championship match, I should say, and then the quarterfinals last year. That's a successful program, and she was a big part of it. I take as much pride in tennis national championships as I do anything else. And so uh, keep adding talent. Get them out. Get them all. All right. Speaking of adding, adding talent, quick hitters here. Juco outfielder Brandon Fields uh, commits to Texas baseball. Um, he He's not your typical Juco player. He was the number one, uh, excuse me, number 31 prospect nationally, one of the top-ranked outfielders in the 2020 class. Uh, he went to South Carolina, left after a season, and basically bounced back. Expect big things. He could... Um, he could be a big contributor right away. Uh, and then a uh, player who obviously has made an impact on his coach didn't 
uh, pitched last year for the Bears, but was a uh, good recruit out of high school number 32 player in Texas two years ago. Um, a Baylor right-hand pitcher Cody Howard follows Steve Rodriguez to the 40 acres. We said it, you know, when when the roster turnover started to happen, we Texas needed to hit the portal hard. We don't know what that that squad is going to look like next year, and so finally got the coaches in place. So now hopefully they can start hitting the transfer portal uh, quite hard, so they can fill out some of those big gaps on the roster. All right, Joe, let's close this fun and full show out with a little bit of Godzilla Tron. We've been watching on your giant screen. Uh, it was a, a relatively big week of streaming for us. I'm frustrated that I won't have time to watch the Manti Teo documentary until this weekend. So you'll find out about that on next week's Godzilla Tron. But uh, there's a new season of Bluey or half season of Bluey out for all the parents out there. Bluey, best kids show on TV right now. It's really a, a, a kids show about parents. Like it's really more about like their interaction with their parents but so good so funny really heartwarming loved it my kids like literally it's impossible to get my kids to sit still and like all of them sat still and watched several episodes of bluey on on sunday so it was great um we watched lightyear it's fun it's fine explaining the concept of a meta universe to a five-year-old was a challenge i wasn't (laughs) ready for but like it's like so why is this buzz different from the other buzz well the buzz and the other toy stories and action figure based upon this movie that andy saw before your mom and i even met so like it's just this whole long thing, but it was it was a fun movie. It was I enjoyed it. My kid my kid liked it, so uh, nothing too wrong with that. And then my wife and I were big Harry Potter fans, but we never saw the most recent like the Secrets of Dumbledore movie that came out. And we I expected it to be really terrible because the reviews were awful, and everybody that I heard talk about it was like it's terrible. It's the worst thing. It was fine. Like it's not, it was okay. It was, I wasn't upset at the end of two-ish hours. There were some really cool things that happened in it. It's fine. It's totally fine. We're not going to get to see any conclusion from it because it made, you know, it still made a profit, but I guess not big enough of a profit to get another one. But it's totally fine. It was free, so it's fine. Free, it's fine. Uh, much like this podcast. No, Gerald, uh, <laughs> I I watched two things or finished one and, and watched the whole of another that have a combined Rotten Tomatoes score of 85 um yeah it's it's, i often have played a game with with friends it's like what's the lowest rotten tomato score movie that you actually like like you've seen and you actually like it's always a fun party game feel free to steal that but um especially you have some some just like you know ncaa sickos committee type people who just are watching some some trash i know gerald you're a big thanks killing and you know like d-grade horror film so in that vein, I watched. Bad on purpose. <laughs> I watched. Uh, I don't think this was bad on purpose necessarily. Maybe the second one was. Now you see me. 2013's comedy drama, as it's listed, um, about uh, a group of magicians. Uh, it has Morgan Freeman in it. It has, you know, actually the cast is is relatively robust um, with, with Jesse Eisenberg and Woody Harrelson and 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 uh, the younger Franco. Um, so. <laughs> It's really bad. My wife was watching it. She loves a bad movie. Like, just loves it. She'll give it the time of day. <laughs> She's found some gems. She's, you know, she'll watch half a movie and be done. I will sit through a bad movie because I pick a little more on what I pick. So, wife was watching on an airplane. She caught me looking over her shoulder, watching it without sound. Put the earpiece in. So, I, I watched half of it. She's like, do you want to finish that while folding laundry? And I did. It was bad. It auto, it auto played on, on, uh, is it Peacock? I think it auto started playing the second one, which is terrible. One of the worst movies I've ever <laughs> seen, but I think they knew it. Like, I think by the time they got like funding for the second one, they leaned in, like they gave, 
uh, Woody Harrelson, a, a you know the twin brother trope who's just ridiculous and has you know weird hair, and it was like hilariously bad. There's scenes that just go on too long, and it's like they know they're doing the Family Guy bit. I don't know. I laughed a lot, but I don't think it was the way they wanted me to laugh. Um, but yeah, those are probably two of the worst things I've seen in the past decade. So don't feel like you need to, but if you'd like to, you can. They should have gone with now you don't. As the second one, so like that. I actually, I actually went when the second one started. I, I, I shrieked to my wife. I said, "There's a second one, first of all, and also it's called Now You See Me Too, not Now You See Me Too colon No You Don't Sucker." So we're on the same, <laughs> we're on the same uh, <laughs> wavelength because I made that that exact joke. Oh man, that is I, whew, I don't know what to say about that other than that's all we've got for you <laughs> this week, Kyle. Where can the good folks find you on the internet? You can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Carbon. You can also follow the Texas Pregamer at Texas Pregamer. Follow me on Twitter at GH Goodrich. Follow the show on Twitter at Longhorn Pod. Facebook and Instagram, the Longhorn Republic. Shoot us an email, LonghornRepublicPod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for tuning in again this week. And until next time, hook 'em. Hook 'em. And kudos to the deep. <laughs> <laughs>